Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Mulrooney, who's a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, a former Canadian ambassador to China, and the deputy minister responsible for the Afghanistan Task Force. David is one of the most principled and thoughtful voices in Canada on foreign policy and the country's national interests. I'm grateful to be able to speak to him about some of these issues. David, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Sean. Thank you. I moderated a panel this past weekend at the Canada Strong and Free Network conference on Canada's place in the world. One of the panelists, David, said that she doesn't think Canada has a foreign policy. Let's just start there. Do you think Canada has a foreign policy? And if not, why not? Well, that's a, that's a really great question. And after I um, left government, uh, I was so concerned about that. And I left the foreign ministry, uh, the fact that I didn't think we had a foreign policy, that I sat down and I, I ended up writing a book about what I, where, where I thought it had gone. And I, I think the problem is, uh, stems out of a great Canadian advantage, and that is that we have to the south of us you know, the most powerful country in the world, and a country that is remarkably like us and with which we have a really close relationship. And because of the strength of the Canada-U.S. relationship ha- has really, in the past, guaranteed our security and our prosperity and our well-being, our health as a society, which are the main things that you have a a foreign policy for. And so what we thought of as foreign policy was a form of Canadian altruism, Canada doing good in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. That, That's to our credit. Uh, And we spent a lot of time building the uh, network of uh, international organizations and rules and the the framework that has, has really governed the world since the Second World War, contributing mightily to that but not really developing a foreign policy. And it's becoming increasingly evident. I mean, I was worrying about it and noticing its absence, obviously, at the end of my career, and it's become much more evident since then. And the real problem is that is, is with our diagnostic of, of the world. We tend to think that we, we act on the world, and it receives this Canadian wisdom and generosity and, and uh, you know, good example but we fail to appreciate that the world is increasingly acting on us. I, I am not a believer in inevitable American decline, but America is simply less capable of doing all those things for itself and for us and for all of its allies. And Canada is more the lonely middle power. And gosh, you know, if you look over the last five, five or six years, we've decided in that time, the government has decided that our foreign policy would, would be a feminist foreign policy and that we do what we could around the world to... Uh, 
empower women and, and to, to work for uh, equality for women. Again, a, a very noble objective. But that assumes, if that's your main foreign policy, that nothing is going to surprise you in the world, that you can focus on that. And we've been badly surprised. I mean, think of our crisis with China, the Meng Wanzhou crisis and the kidnapping of two Canadians, the great economic and political pressure China put on us. Think of war in the Ukraine. Think of the pandemic. The, you can be altruistic, but you also have to plan for threats to your security, threats to your economic prosperity, and threats to your well-being, your health. And I don't think we did that. So the absence of our foreign policy is beginning to, to hurt us. And it is real. There, there's so much there, David, from uh, a description of our national interests to changing relationship with the United States and, of course, the rise of China. And I, I promise we'll come to all of those topics. But if I can just stay on uh, this question of of our foreign policy or absence of a foreign policy. One of the arguments that you've made elsewhere is that Canadian policymakers have effectively replaced a national interest-driven foreign policy with one that at least in part reflects domestic diaspora politics. We're seeing this play out in the context of the conservative leadership campaign in which Patrick Brown is essentially aiming to replace the, the party's existing membership with new members based in large part on his policy promises relevant to certain immigrant communities. Why don't you talk a bit about the rise of diaspora politics and what you think the policy consequences are? One of the things that has, we, we, as you point out, Sean, have, we've substituted for foreign policy is using Canada's international activities and international relationships, the foreign travel of our leaders, as a stage on which to, uh, to cultivate uh, groups in Canada that are important to political parties. And so... Um, for example, m most of my career was spent working on China, and no trip to China could be complete without MPs uh, from China, with delegations from China. Uh, and we would, in, in high-level bilaterals, regale uh, Chinese leaders with stories of the diaspora, a diaspora about which they are not particularly uh, sentimental. Right? They, they, there are a lot of the, the Chinese diaspora internationally is very big. Nor would they necessarily see that as a sole topic of conversation, which Canadian leaders tended to see it as. And instead of pointing to the very real interests vis-a-vis -vis China that all Canadians have relating to, again, our, our prosperity, relating to our, our security, relating to global governance, we tended to focus narrowly on what we thought of as the interests of a particular group. And what really worries me and bothers me about that is we treat a certain group of Canadians as somewhat hyphenated or as having an existence. And that attracts countries that are inclined to interfere, and, and that includes China, but it's not excluded to China. In other countries, including India in the past, dabbling in Canadian affairs, I think attracted by the obvious political importance of the diaspora. So it, it, it's really a bad policy all around, and one that we're addicted to. And, I, and there are other countries that, you know, you look at Australia, you look at the United States that have large diaspora populations. That factors to a certain extent in their international relations, but then they move on to other things. And I, I'd be the fly on the wall in bilateral meetings, and you can sort of see that point when your, your foreign interlocutor, the leader's foreign interlocutor, the minister's foreign interlocutor, realizes that the Canadians don't have anything else to say. And so it's a nice friendly meeting, but it's completely uh, without substance. So we're, we're addicted to this. It attracts foreign interference, and it really 
mistreats and mischaracterizes people that we should be uh, championing as Canadians. That's, that's a fascinating um, set of observations, David. Um, now let's bring the conversation to China, which you, you've mentioned a couple of times. You have a long track record of working on, on China issues. I, I didn't include them all in my introduction or, or it would have gone on for some time, but listeners will be familiar with your, your various roles, including, of course, as ambassador. You've been a critic of Canadian policy vis-a-vis China. It's fair to say that you were a minority voice raising some of these concerns about Chinese interests and ambitions. Um, what did you see that others didn't? And then secondly, as the rest of the world opens its eyes to China, why has Canada been slower in your view? I, I think part of the problem, and again, it has to do with that um, lack of foreign policy, we're so locked into send mode that we're not very good on receive mode. And it's obvious, but the, the major story about China is its tremendous dynamism and the extent to which it is in, in constantly changing and developing and evolving. And we, we stopped noticing that and tended to think that the relationship as it was as it was when we were, uh, I, I think, um, in, in 1970, ahead of the curve in recognizing the importance of China. Prime Minister's father, Pierre Trudeau, took the step of recognizing China when, for example, the United States had not and China always thanked us for that, but we thought that relationship was frozen in amber and that we'd always be this, uh, you know, sort of beneficent partner and, and uh, the senior partner in the relationship when that changed. The other thing that happened and, and where the, the, I think the problem got turbocharged was around the time of the economic, global economic crisis of 2008-2009, when China, uh, you know, escaped the crisis through you know, wise policy, through the size of its economy that was already connected, globally connected on which the world depended. And the rising tide of China's economy uh, helped a lot, of, a lot of us. You know, a lot of boats floated because of, of China. And I watched Canadians come to China in those years, and they tended to see the future. And, and it was China. They were dazzled by the cityscapes, by the airports, by the razzle-dazzle of China, and failed to look more closely at some of the persistent problems that China was facing, and also, I think, failed to pay sufficient attention to the way China itself was changing and the way it, it dealt with us. And I, I experienced that over time, that China, the relationship at a diplomatic level changed long before it changed in a way that uh, other Canadians would see it. And the Chinese were much tougher with us, much rougher with us, and their behind-the-scenes behavior, uh, their tendency to bully and to interfere was evident long ago if, for those who, who had a sort of front-row seat day in, day out on the relationship. And I was lucky enough to be one of those, those people. Although, you know, it took me a while to, to sort of fully understand the, the implications of that. In the last 10 years, that has, has uh, only increased. And it's only increased because of the leadership of Xi Jinping uh, the current uh, president and, and, and party leader and someone who has uh, shown every indication of wanting to stay in that position for some time. And I think he and those around him have seen that not only is China growing and, and increasingly important in the globe, but they feel that there is an absence of global leadership, that the United States is no longer uh, the uh, unchallengeable leader of uh, the world, and that there's an opportunity for China to, to play that role. So we've seen a much more aggressive China. And that's happened 
at a time when, when Canada, uh, I think, has been especially vulnerable. And it's been vulnerable because the current prime minister, the, the son of the prime minister who, who established that relationship, I, I think has never managed to get beyond uh, his early naivete on China. He very famously, as uh, before he became uh, leader even, uh, unfortunately said that China was, he admired the basic dictatorship. He's repudiated that remark. But he's done nothing since then, even as prime minister, to reassure Canadians that he really truly is over it. For me, for example, the fact that he went to China to negotiate a progressive free trade deal and actually thought that he could persuade China to change its very society to be more like Canadian society strikes me as an example of his continuing naivete. His appointments as ambassador, John McCallum and Dominic Barton, very you know worthy and distinguished individuals, but basically China promoters at a time when we needed to lessen our dependence on China, needed to step back, also suggests, suggests that to me. And the, the most recent example that I, I found, I still find shocking, is the fact that in the midst of the pandemic, when it was obvious that China was using uh, vaccine politics and the pandemic for political reasons, and when China was seeking to dominate us and coerce us, the idea that we proposed a vaccine partnership with China is, is astounding. The results were inevitable because they, they cratered as the, it became clear that uh, Meng Wanzhou was not going to be sent back to China anytime soon. But that, that lingering naivete has happened at a time as China has become more aggressive globally and more aggressive in Canada. So we've been more vulnerable than most, and I, I don't see any sign of that, that changing. Let's... Um just stay on this uh, topic for for one more minute. I'd just be fascinated to hear your thoughts, David, on on what you think is behind this instinct to this draw towards China reflected in some parts of our politics and some parts of our business community. Is it primarily about economic opportunities? Is it a kind of inherent anti-Americanism? What do you think has been the allure of China uh, reflected in parts of official Ottawa now for several years? I think both. You, you, you've touched on both. There is an element uh, and a strong element of anti-Americanism because it, China offered to, and it's not just Canadians, um, you see it in Europe. You might even dare I say, and it hurts me to say this as a Catholic, see it in the Vatican, to see People see in China uh, a future and a set of opportunities that isn't the United States. And they naively believe that uh, China would allow them, you, you, you could sort of hit, switch from an American bus to a Chinese bus without many consequences. And, and that, that's a, a, a folly, but it's a folly that many people have embraced. And there's also the money. I mean, nobody knows this more than the Chinese. And so part of it is what they call elite capture, and, and that is offering people lucrative board memberships or contracts or free visits and, and things like that. And part of it is relentless optimism of all too many uh, business leaders. I have described Chinese leaders as CEO whisperers. They know what to say to see, and I've watched them do this, and they'll say, um, you know, I lead a... The, the, one of the large, I lead the largest country in the world, but you're a major CEO and you know you have to take tough decisions and you've been successful and we've been successful. And they have uh, these folks sort of eating out of the palm of their hands and they woo them. And, and unfortunately, some CEOs are not all that 
loyal to the um, to the um, democratic Western system when uh, there's a lot of money to be had. So they they woo captains of industry uh, quite successfully, and then they tend to be very unreliable uh, diplomatic and political advisors. So there's a lot of that. I think the anti-Americanism is being tempered now finally by just how egregious uh, China's uh, grab for power has been. And, and so many people are being moved uh, you know, to the fence and then off the fence. Uh, but there are still some there who I think uh, quite, you know, sometimes like to see China score points at the expense of what they see as the United States, but is increasingly really the West and countries like Canada. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me ask you about what the contours of Canadian policy vis-a-vis China ought to be. Listeners may be familiar with the phrase decoupling. Is that the right objective for Canadian policy? Or do we need something of a middle ground between fully extracting ourselves from the influence and potential control of China on one hand, and foregoing these economic opportunities represented by China, on the other hand. In other words, David, if there's a spectrum here, where should Canada be on the spectrum? I think it should be intelligently self-interested, but that means a degree of decoupling. So, I mean, I think the first thing that has to be done is uh, to move uh, in the way that a country like Australia has moved to combat uh, foreign interference, which is real. And we've even seen, uh, we have had cause to worry that China has attempted to interfere in Canadian politics in the not-so-distant dis- not so past. Uh, what Australia has done is uh, they've simply um, made it a crime to work or act on behalf of a foreign uh, government, either directly or through one of its proxy organizations, and not disclose it. They've said, you can do this, but you have to be transparent about it. And this has had uh, a profound effect in, in Australia. And it, uh, in, just before the, this became law, uh, a couple of former senior politicians on their own decided that they would drop off the boards of Chinese um, um, corporations that they had been serving on. So move against Chinese interference in Canada as, as step one to diminish our economic dependence in China, we've seen you know, products like canola, where our very success has been used against us, but not give up on the Chinese market because the long-term trend, and I, and I, I want to say this carefully and, and, and I don't want to sound as, as ghoulish as I might, but the long-term trend is we have what China needs and we should never forget that. China may be punishing us from time to time on canola, but over the long term, given what's happening uh, with climate in China, what's happening with, with soil and, and the availability of farmland, with water supply is that China will increasingly depend on countries like Canada and Australia for its food supply. And we should be aware of that and, and be as generous and humanitarian as possible, but also understand that it gives us some protection against uh, some of China's more uh, egregious activities. We also have to think in terms of new a- allies and partnerships. All kinds of things are happening. We don't tend to be in as many of them 
There is a US, UK, Australia. There's a quad. There are things that we're just not part of. And I think we have to, we are tremendously loyal to the UN system. I think the UN system needs a, a hard second look, uh, not to be abandoned, but to be reformed uh, and, and perhaps um, in some cases be given less authority and importance than it does have in Canada. And we need to look at, uh, at new relationships. And then the final thing I think we need to do is, is up our China competence. So in, in, at a time when China is, is posing increasing threats to Canada, now more than ever, we need Canadians who understand China. And one of the things I thought about is, is you know, a, a, an elite China school for members of the public service across the board, not just foreign affairs, the military and, and other Canadians, where you know, some people would, wouldn't be studying full-time language, but they'd be in it for weekly or monthly sessions with some of the top China thinkers from around the globe in, in a- academics and, and media and, and business. Uh, but also others would be studying Chinese culture and politics and getting to know and understand the Chinese system. I was surprised when I was ambassador that uh, the only senior member of the Canadian forces who came to China was, to his credit, and he's a, he's a great guy, uh, then Chief of the Defense Staff, Walt Matinchuk. But there were no other exchanges. And I'm not suggesting we, we have exchanges with the People's Liberation Army for naive reasons, but to understand how they operate and what drives their thinking, where our vulnerabilities might be. So there are areas, uh, climate, uh, global food supply, God knows global health. Canada has been hit very hard by two pandemics that have come from China, the SARS and and now COVID. We need to stay close on things like that. There are lots of Chinese academics and there are lots of Chinese specialists that we can benefit from and need to hear from. But we also need to know where we shouldn't uh, be cooperating with China. And in the past, we've had this this idea of comprehensive engagement. I, I don't mean to punish Ambassador John McCallum, but he would end some of his speeches by by saying, Gang duo, gang duo, even more, let's do more. That's not what we need. We need selectivity. And some of the problems we've seen in the uh, federal public service where they've done sort of boneheaded things like approving Chinese technology for screening machinery in our um, embassies because they were the low bidder, would not have happened if simply in, in the federal public service there had been a, a directive to say, if, if it says China right now, talk to ask your boss, you know, get us get a second opinion. Let's think about this. Not every idea is a good idea. And what happens in the federal public service is that I used to joke about this, but horrify myself by joking about it. When people would talk about China's strategy, what they meant was getting every department and agency in Ottawa in say 2011 the time when everybody was gaga about China, to sort of put their China project on the table, then you'd wrap a big ribbon around it and say, this big, you know, undigestible mass is, is our, our China policy. A China policy should have maybe four or five objectives, and they should be achievable, they should be measurable, they should be high level, they should be built into ministers, letters uh, from the prime minister, mandate letters, and, and Canadians should be aware of how we're doing. We also can't be afraid to talk about China. And this government, for all its China naivete, and perhaps because of it, has been remarkably afraid of talking about China to Canadians. So we still don't know what's happening with our 5G system and, and where Huawei stands. I think we can sort of see what the trend is, but no one's saying that right out loud. We've moved from having a China policy being developed to having an Indo-Pacific policy. And I think that's a way of saying we're actually not going to focus as much on China, but we're just not going to talk about it. But China's not going away. 
having an Indo-Pacific policy won't remove the challenges, I think Canadians will be much more reassured to have a prime minister say to us, look, there are some problems here and, and Canada is facing, if we face a foreign policy crisis, it, it could well come from uh, uh, an aggressive and assertive China. And we've seen some of this. I mean, if you look at the Meng Wanzhou crisis, when you know, she was arrested in Vancouver and held uh, on a U.S. extradition request, it, what was happening there was an example of increasingly assertive attempts by China to erode our sovereignty and our autonomy. Because what they were saying was, no, Canada, don't think that your extradition treaty with your closest ally, the United States, applies for people that we consider to be um, princes and princesses in our system, elite Chinese citizens. So you, you better not do that. And what was really shocking, and that's, that would be an erosion of our autonomy, what's really shocking about that was, for me, how many senior Canadians were willing to go along with that? There was a kind of a moral fatigue in Canada that worries me. I think we can, we can get a China policy right. We can, we, we can re-energize the Department of Foreign Affairs. We can reform the military. We can refocus the security agencies. But it takes, it, it takes an act of will. It takes self-confidence. It takes uh, moral energy. And I think those are in low supply. And I, 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 I think I can understand some of the reasons for it. You, you, you can't have a foreign policy. You can't navigate in terms of the world if you don't know where you are, right? If you, and we've lost, as, as many countries have, we've, we've lost our sense of that. We're mired in doubt. We're mired in internal divisions. It's very hard to navigate from that point to, uh, to, to a destination that you, you hope to arrive at. Uh, and so we've we got to deal with some of, we've got to get our own act together before we can get our foreign policy together. And um, I guess I'm becoming more pessimistic about that, to be very honest, Sean. That's a very thoughtful answer, David. I have a few more questions for you, but just to, on the point you make about the interrelationship between our own domestic political culture and how we project um, those values and priorities in the world. Uh, last year, I went back and read George Kennan's long telegram. And what struck me is it was much about the American culture and society as it was about it, the, the country's relationship with the Soviet Union. So even in that case, leading experts were encouraging policymakers to focus as much inward as they were outwards. So those are really thoughtful observations. And, and you know, you think about that and then think about the, the puzzling thing that the prime minister said in the, to the New York Times, that, that Canada was you know, the first post-industrial society, that there was no sort of core identity in, in Canada. I'm not, I mean, not so, not so sure about a core identity, but a, a shared sense of purpose and of achievement and faith in some of our most basic institutions, I think is a prerequisite. And, and we, we lack that. Although you wouldn't know it sometimes from our foreign policy, in particular our development policy, because when I talked in the past about altruism, I think we've moved from altruism to a kind of, and it's been described by some people in recipient countries, as a kind of ideological colonization, where our development policy is really uh, using, cutting checks to, and we've spoken openly about this, to transform countries in the developing world, and primarily in Africa, to be more like Canada. Uh, and I think at the time that this was announced, they even said, you know, we, we have to challenge uh, beliefs and laws that don't accord with this, even if they're the beliefs and laws of the country. And in a strange way, and in a very sad way, 
we're doing in our foreign policy today, in our development policy, what we now acknowledge we did through residential schools. We're, we're changing other cultures because they're not enough like us. And you'd think that we'd be hypersensitive to that. And this is another example of not listening. We're only in delivery mode. We're telling these countries what they're going to get from Canada. We're not asking them what they need or what they'd like. We're not bothering to show respect for their own cultures and, and their traditions. We're going to change them. And that is, is unsettling. David, I mentioned the panel session that I participated in last week. One of the panelists, Marcus Kolga, who you no doubt know, argued that Canada ought to place fundamental values at the center of its foreign policy, even if it comes at the cost of our economic interests. You served as ambassador to China, as we've discussed. How did you deal firsthand with those trade-offs, and how should Canada manage them in general? That, that's one of the hardest things to deal with in, in foreign policy, that you need to understand that you need a wise pragmatism to understand that the world is a you know, very diverse place and not everybody does things the way we do them and you can't change everybody. But you have to have, there are limits to that. So while we should be modest in terms of our expectations of changing China, and I talked about that, what I thought was foolish of the prime minister to, to think he could change China into a progressive state through a free trade negotiation. Things like China's unimaginable cruelty in, in Xinjiang and Tibet should give us pause and cause us to change, to withdraw, to uh, uh, impose sanctions. That, that's, uh, th that's certainly a step too far. So you have to have standards. You, you, you acknowledge diversity, but you, under you accept the fact that um, there, there, uh, there are global standards, and that's where institutions like the UN, like the charters uh, 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 relating to human rights and uh, crimes against humanity uh, become important. And it's important that everybody is held accountable or um, countries like China get a free pass. The fact that we attended the Olympics, for example, at a time when uh, China uh, had more than a million Uyghurs, has more than a million Uyghurs in prison, it's um, accused and stands accused, credibly accused of things like um, forced sterilization and abortion, of kidnapping uh, people, of intimidating Uyghurs in Canada. It, it was to me shameful that we participated and we did it for all the wrong reasons. So you need to be pragmatic, but you have to have a, a handle on, on values that are not just Canadian values, that are, are global values. And that, that's, that's not easy. Uh, Jacques Maritain, the French philosopher, who spent some time at uh, the University of St. Michael's College, which is an institution I know well, was one of the drafters of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And he said that even in those post-war years, it was difficult to get everybody to sign on to that list. But he said, we, we got it done. And so I would hang on to that list of uh, human rights uh, uh, as tightly as possible and, and never give up on that because I think, I believe that there are universal human rights and, um, we all, and the way to keep them keep them relevant is to stand up for them when they're threatened, even by countries like China. Let me ask you about one of those, uh, David. We, we had Michael Ignatieff on the podcast a couple of months ago. He was implicitly critical of the Trudeau government's decision to eliminate the Office of Religious Freedom in the Department of Foreign Affairs on the grounds that part of Canadian foreign, foreign policy ought to be advancing and promoting the principle of religious freedom. As a foreign, foreign policy expert and a person of faith, uh, why do you think that religious freedom is something that Canada ought to champion in its foreign policy? 
precisely for that reason, because it is a basic human right and it's something that is, is shared uh, globally. The other reason is that, that religious freedom has never been, is at least uh, as threatened now as it has ever been. If you look at China, in, in my direct experience, where um, Muslims in, in Xinjiang, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, Protestants and Catholics uh, throughout the country are under great pressure. Uh, if you look at Pakistan, where violence against minority religions and Christians in particular in Africa, across Nigeria, it's, it's horrific in the Middle East. And I've been tremendously disappointed that the Office of Religious Freedom was dismantled. At the time, the government said, well, we're going to blend it in with other uh, human rights that are also important. That was a, a, a sort of a subtle uh, shift that I saw within the department when the office was announced. It was as if people were saying, critics within the department and later within the new government, that religious people were getting a, a, an extra cherry um, by, by having their, their freedoms protected and that somehow this was taking away from, from others. And so the way it was phrased in the department, which is a, a pretty secular organization, was, oh, we're having an office for religious freedom. Does that mean, are we going to defend um, atheism? I said, well, you know, I, I've been working in China, and I think atheism is pretty well, well defended there. I don't think it needs much support. But why can't we also support those Chinese people who aspire quite naturally to, to express their beliefs and live, live their faith? So I've been disappointed. I'd also have to say, though, that what's worried me even more is that closing the Office of Religious Freedom isn't the only signal that this government has given that it is less than preoccupied with religious freedom. You think back to the inexplicable speech that the former Governor General gave in which he mocked Canadians of religious faith, and when the Prime Minister was asked about it, he rallied to the defense of the Governor General, whose name he sent to Buckingham Palace, and, and not to Canadians of religious faith. And there have been other things where, uh, other indications that uh, the religious beliefs of Canadians have not been given much concern. And most troubling to, uh, to many, myself included, was last summer with the, uh, the arson against churches. And so uh, I think it's often the case that it isn't just a problem out there, and our inability to deal with it out there is because we're not dealing with it very well here. And I, I, I worry about that. And one of the things that I'm interested in I'll be uh, meeting with uh, some folks in, in Ottawa next month on this topic of religious freedom and uh, how young people of faith can give their gift of service to Canada. Canada built in part by people of religious faith. Drive through any Canadian city and look at the hospitals and the schools and things like that, and you'll see that legacy. They don't feel, and I, when I talk to young people now, they don't feel, for example, that a, a role in politics is open to them anymore. And that, that worries me. And it's a problem that we need to address by, some, by something other than saying, yeah, you're right, you don't have the right beliefs, so you, you can't be part of the political system. So we've, before we even deal with it abroad, we need to take a good, solid look at ourselves at home, and I, I, I worry about that. I would just point out for listeners interested in these topics, David and I are speaking on um, May 9th. Um, today we've published an excellent article by Ray Pennings from Cardis raising concerns about new D&D guidelines around the role of the chaplaincy um, in the department, which is another example of the decline of or the marginalization of religious voices in our public square. David, if I can wrap up with a final question, you've been so generous with your time. 
I, I just want to ask you um, about China looking forward. Uh, you know more about that country than virtually any other Canadian policy expert. There's a prevailing assumption in much of our policy and political discourse that China is poised to eclipse the United States as the world's dominant superpower. Yet at some fundamental levels, as you said earlier, there are a lot of problems in, in Chinese society, including but not limited to its low fertility rates and aging demographics. If you were to score things, what is the health of Chinese society? Is it the powerful player that it positions itself? Or is it fundamentally weaker than that? I watched the Kentucky Derby over the weekend. I always watch the I'm not a gambler or a horse player, but I love watching the Kentucky Derby. And sometimes there are horses that um, get off to a slow start and then have a tremendous stretch through the middle of the, the race, but don't have what it takes to finish. And I think that's the, the challenge that China faces. In my time working on China, I, I mean, I, I was witness to this burst of creative energy and entrepreneurial energy and technological sophistication that has positioned China at the top of you know, so many indicators of, of global success. But at the same time, it faces, I, I mentioned the environmental problems, how North China is now basically a desert, soil pollution is, is a critical level, air pollution, of course, is at a, at a critical level. You, you also have problems in terms of the Chinese economy, and its failure to make a transition to uh, an economy that is, is, is more balanced and less subject to the, the boom and bust cycles. And we're seeing the end of a boom cycle and we're getting into a bust cycle when it comes to, to real estate. But this problem of uh, demographics is, is, is really, really serious. And, and it's certainly exacerbated by the uh, one-child policy and how that was imposed. And what happens in it, I mean, I always think of China as... as think of Europe, that you can have a policy that's outlined with a lot of sophistication in Beijing, but by the time it gets to distant provinces, it's like going from Brussels to uh, the edge of the Black Sea. I mean, the people will read things differently and, and give them effect differently. So while in some cases people were able to moderate the ill effects of the one-child policy, it, they were brutally imposed in other places. China's getting older. Uh, there are more disabled senior citizens in China than there are Canadians on the planet already. And, and uh, the, the problems of elder care. And, and there's also a psychological challenge and barrier coming for China. And that is the day, and it's not far off, when the Chinese wake up and see that India is a bigger country than they are. It, China looks down on India and is scathing often in what it says. And of course, China and India are nearly at war from time to time in the high Himalayas. But China has always sensed that its success and its dynamism is due to its population. And when it cedes first place to India, maybe in the next decade, it will be a, a tremendous psychological barrier. So it's an aging society, and it's, as has been said, you know, Japan got rich before it got old. China is getting old before it gets as, as rich as it at least it thinks it needs to be. The biggest problem, I think, though, is the problem with the Communist Party itself. And so now we have Xi Jinping, who is undoing the uh, leadership succession protocols that were arrived at uh, through great struggle and, and hardship, but to the great satisfaction and pride of the Chinese political class, where basically you had an orderly succession where people, the leader was in place for 10 years, and then by that time his successors would be apparent and you'd have the next level of, of uh, leadership emerge. 
Xi Jinping isn't giving up, and he is he, he has been engaged in a long-running campaign against uh, corrupt officials, but also his enemies in the system. And what happens when you ditch the retirement plan is it be, you can't retire because you know you've made so many enemies that uh, you're in mortal peril if you do so. The Chinese communist system, no system lasts forever. The Chinese say there is no banquet that never ends. And although the Chinese Communist Party has had an amazing run, it's had its centenary, at some point there has to be political reform in China. It just can't, the, the machine can't run forever. And Xi Jinping is testing the machine as it's never been tested before. So I, I don't think China is going to implode in the near future, but I think it will become increasingly shaky, increasingly unpredictable, and increasingly difficult for its citizens and for its, you know, its neighbors in the world, which brings me back to my original idea that we need a smart China policy and we need to up our China competence. It's in our Canadian interest and it's key to a successful Canadian foreign policy. Well, for those listeners who've stayed with us for this whole conversation, they've no doubt up their China competency. David Mulroney, Distinguished Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much, Sean. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.